Twitter. I'm Isaac Fitzgerald. He is Saeed Jones. We are back. We're back. And you are watching AM to DM. Oh, my children. I have missed you all so much. He had dreams about you guys on the road. I was in Chicago. We were on our road trip, uh, which we just got back from. And I I dreamed that I was in the AM to DM production meeting, talking to our producer, Mary, getting ready for an interview. And it was like the sun was shining. We were all laughing, having a great time. And I woke up and realized I was in that damn hotel room. And I was like, see, when you were, when a work dream is like the fantasy dream, that's when you're like, it's time to get I back to I had the most York. wonderful dream last <laughs> night, Isaac. Oh yeah, what happened? I was at work. <laughs> what? Hmm. We're so happy to be back. We're very happy to be back. It's so good to see all you guys. Uh, but listen, we got things to talk about. All right, Kill Daddy Hive. I want to start here. Saeed, would you read this tweet from okay. Abby Gardner? All right, Abby. Uh, sorry, I couldn't meet you for drinks. I'm following along as the ferocity watches my beloved Outlander for the first time. Okay, cool, cool, <laughs> cool. Okay. You know, skipping cool, cool, plans. Cool, cool. Could you read this tweet from Christina Rafferty? <laughs> Oh, Christina. Um, my kids are so happy they got pizza for dinner because I couldn't stay away from Twitter long enough to cook. They say thank you. Oh, I bet they do. Lastly, <laughs> let's read this one from Leslie Said. Okay. Uh, swear to God, I'm altering my work schedule to be able to watch your feed tomorrow. Okay, oh, yes. Man. You live tweeted season one of Outlander yesterday <laughs> and plans were canceled. Children almost went unfed and people called in sick to work. Yeah. So I want to ask you, man, what is going on? Oops, I did it again. <laughs> I'm so sorry. If you've been following me for a while, and shout out to like my 5,000 new followers, uh, you know that I live tweet shows. Mm. I do it all the time, mm. especially when I'm sick or mm. hungover. Uh, and I've been sick this weekend mm. after the road trip. So yeah, I just watching a bunch of shows, The mm. Haunting of Hill House, and I was like, I'm running out of stuff. And I was like, oh, Outlander. People have talked about this. Uh, and and what, see, here's the thing. So I, I like to experience these moments because I'm outside of mm -hmm. it, and I'll just see like, oh, I'm gonna live tweet. I'm like, oh, Saeed's live tweeting the show. Cool. Yeah, you know, like two like, hours oh, later, I'll check in. How are things going? First off, just a sea of abs. So <laughs> I don't know what Outlander is, uh, but it was a lot of abs. Yeah. And like so many people engaging with. Like it you just intense. said it. 5,000 yeah. new followers. So so first off, how many episodes did you watch? Um, I watched, I'm almost finished with the first season. Uh, so I watched, I guess I've seen like 16 episodes or something. Six. I have like four episodes left. It's a lot of episodes. Yeah. Um, were you surprised when people started saying they were gonna call in sick to work to keep up with your, your Twitter feed? <laughs> I thought people were joking. Yeah, I mean, you know, I've live tweeted Buffy before. Shout mm. out to late Buffy. Mm. And you know, I know when there's a fandom, people you know who maybe don't already follow you, like get in and that's why it's so fun. But I've gotta say, shout out to Outlander fans because this was like unlike anything I've ever seen. And what? Like, I was like, are they called like the Outstanders or like Outladdies? What, what's like an Outlander fan Outladies. called? Outladdies. Yeah. That's really good. Um, I, you know, I want to say we should be called pregnant because, you know. Um, but apparently it's like the Clandom. I've also seen there's a group of Blacklanders, shout out, represent. I like Kilt Daddy. Uh-huh. You like Kilt Daddy. <laughs> the Kilt Daddy Hive. Is that the one you invented? <laughs> That's kind of what I've got. All right, surprise, about, surprise. So. Well, listen, I love when Saeed Live tweets too, okay, people? <laughs> but don't call in sick to work, okay? Do not risk employment 
for his live tweets. Let's take it to the timeline. In fact, what's the, I don't want to say dumbest. Yeah, don't be judgy. Yeah, not going to be judgy here, but what's like the strangest or kookiest reason you called in sick to work or you know got fired over? <laughs> Let us know using the hashtag AM2. Don't worry, Saeed's tweets will be there after you care for your children for the love of God. Still, they'll still be there. They'll, they'll still, still be, there. be there. Got a tweet here from Lens here for the Kilt Daddy coverage. <laughs> Got to give the people what they want. How many seasons are there? What are you? Are there you... are four. Oh, season four comes back in three weeks. So get All ready. Right. Get All ready. right. Well, of course, there was also a lot of news besides Outlander while we were out. Uh, let's start with that video from Senator Elizabeth Warren. Splinter staff writer Nick Martin wrote a piece yesterday tweeting, after a deep breath and some helpful chats, I deposited my rage and thoughts on Warren, DNA testing, and the weight of being native into a single piece, Elizabeth Warren's deception. Nick Martin joins us now. Nick, good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me on, guys. Of course. Thanks for joining us and for your piece. It's so thoughtful. I learned a lot. Okay, so in your piece, you write, quote, every native, and I do mean every native, understood the moment Donald Trump first started calling Warren Pocahontas that this would be where we end up. Uh, why were you so sure? Um, just because it seemed so natural. Um, uh, you know, I, I don't know what else to expect from this particular last two years news cycle in particular, but definitely just um, from coming from a native background and you look at how we're represented in politics and media, it's always, uh, it tends to be very cheaply. And so it made sense to me that um, just knowing the history of, uh, and you know, just like growing up culturally, every time you talk to somebody about, uh, you know, I tell somebody that I'm a member of a, a tribe, uh, tribal nation, and they're just like, um, you know, well, I should do a DNA test or something like that and say, I bet I've got some in me too. And which just, just completely misses the point of being a part of a uh, Native American community and Native American nation. Um, so it was just kind of something where I knew based on just talking to people um, growing up and just how and how politics are uh, work now and have always worked in relation to Native peoples that we would probably be at this point with before the 2020 election. And here we are at this point before the midterms. What would you say to folks that did believe what Warren did was the good choice? She's not claiming tribal affiliation. Yeah, um, I, I mean, that's kind of what the, the piece is about, just about how that misses the larger point. I mean, ultimately what she was anywhere from 164th to one 1,000th and 24th Native American. And it's not, it's more about using that Native identity just to like get the one up on Donald Trump. Is that, you know what I mean? It's like, she's just using it to say like, oh, well, I'm not a liar. I, I've got a little Native in me, but it's like, there's no real point to it past that. And it's just, that's another, um, it's not another uh, point where it's not so dissimilar from the mascot discussions or anything like that, where it, we're just there to be kind of talked about on the fringe, but we're not really ever given a voice in those conversations. It's always people, normally white people, having those conversations around us, which Elizabeth Warren is. She's a white person, and she just happens to have maybe have a North, North or Southern American indigenous blood in her um, in a small amount. Um, I also wanted to point out, because of course, uh, the way we talk about indigenous people and Native American culture, we all have a lot of work to do, frankly, and I'm owning that. Um, you point out in a piece from Splinter, the publication you work for, you know, your frustration with uh, something they published. I really quote, and this is the piece title, I really don't get why Elizabeth Warren did a DNA test to prove her Native American heritage. So let, let's talk about that. Why did that piece frustrate you? 
Um, I mean, it's not even the piece. I think it's more that like, and this is something I talked about with the author of the piece and who's also um, my editor. Um, you know, it, it's more about what I'm kind of what I say in the piece, how that's just like a normative white media outlet, which is the majority of media outlets. I mean, and I use the New York Times headline in there the same in there. I could have pulled probably about a dozen different examples. But um, luckily, I do get to work at a place where we can kind of shine the light back on ourselves and critique ourselves. And we're cool with that. And nobody um, was upset or anything about that. Um, it just led to a good discussion. And I think that, you know, just showing that even at a company like ours, where we have a Native American writer on staff, I was out of, uh, I was actually traveling on Monday, so or else I probably would have done something um, on Monday instead of Tuesday. But uh, I, I just think it just goes to show that even here, we're somewhere we'd like to, um, you know, I think this company likes to think of itself as being very progressive. It just shows you that there's still issues, I think, with how we view things maybe through that. I think that article was particularly only viewed through a, a political lens. And that just lent itself to a lot of frustration that I think I had and a lot of other um, Native people in media and outside of media had with the coverage of it. It was all about this kind of back and forth between her and Donald Trump. And there was never anything, any sort of inclusivity when it came to um, Native representation in that conversation. And like I said, luckily, my editor and I had a really great discussion about that. Um, and I'm glad I work at a place that, you know, where we can have that kind of critique of one another. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And that's powerful. Nick, I did want to bring one, one thing you mentioned in your piece, the I earned it clips in Elizabeth yeah. Warren's video. You call them the I learned it clips. What was Warren's misstep there, and why was that part of our video so upsetting to you personally? Because that's another part of your, it's an essay, mm -hmm. the personality there, your, your own personal experience. Yeah, um, yeah, I mean, just speaking to my personal experience, uh, you know, what the inclusion of those clips really did, uh, or really, I guess, kind of set off for me was, you know, it's this idea that, and I, it's, it's gotten, I guess, different over the years, um, just based on how many people go to school now. But still, the media representation on college campuses is far below what it should be. Media representation, or native representation, sorry, native representation in media and politics and government. It's, it's we're far, like statistically, we are underrepresented in almost every single um institutional power structure. And so for myself, uh, you know, I was from a small town in North Carolina. I did okay in high school, but I ended up getting accepted to Duke. And it took me a long time to kind of come around to accepting the fact that that had a large part to do with, um, you know, my uh, tribal heritage, my tribal background, because, uh, you know, you, I was able to check off that box on my application. Um, now, I, feel I, would, I, I hope that I've done uh, enough since then to kind of prove that I, I could at least kind of hold my own along, uh, alongside the fo other folks at Duke that kind of come from maybe more prestigious backgrounds than me. But uh, yeah, it's something that I think a lot of people, and you know, obviously I'm among the privileged few Native Americans that haven't had the chance to go to a college like that. So I have to recognize myself within that as well. Um, but yeah, it took me a long time to kind of come around to accepting and being able to talk openly about the fact that I got into that school specifically for the reason of, um, you know, tribal heritage and tribal background. And that's something that uh, I think a lot of, um, you know, not just Native American people, but um, minorities, people of color, women, I think a lot of people can have um, this kind of self-doubt that kind of manifests itself. And a lot of it does just come within thinking, internal thinking and probably um, stressing myself out too much about it. But also a lot of it is stigmatized and a lot of it does come from external pressures and the way that people talk about affirmative action nowadays. Um, 
and I guess always, not just nowadays, but always. And so, um, yeah, I was glad that I was able to finally write that and put that on paper. It's something that I've been able to talk about um, pretty fluently and openly uh, for about a year now, thanks in large part to my girlfriend uh, who helped me kind of come through and have a lot of really big heart-to-heart conversations on that. But I mean, it, it took a long time to get there. Well, we are so glad you're there and we're really glad you shared that piece with us. Nick, thanks for joining us this morning. Thank you guys for having me. Of course, awesome. All right, well listen, one last thought from the shrillest. Call me crazy, but I think establishing a precedent in which politicians release DNA tests in order to prove their ancestry is not likely to end well. Just my take. Oof, that is, that that ain't a take, that's an observation. (laughs) Prediction, thank you for that shrillest, my goodness. Well, we also of course have to talk about Jamal Khashoggi. Mark Fullman tweeted, Wall Street Journal, Saudi operatives beat, drugged, killed, and dismembered a dissident Saudi journalist in the presence of the kingdom's top diplomat in Istanbul, Turkish officials said. Trump, here you go again with, you know, you're guilty until proven innocent. Jim Roberts had this to say, if there was any doubt that Saudi crown prince had a connection to the disappearance, killing of dissident journalist Jamal Khashoggi, this New York Times report should erase it. BuzzFeed, Deputy, BuzzFeed News Deputy World Editor Hayes Brown joins us now. Hayes, good morning. Good morning, guys. I'm so glad we can talk to you about this because it, it's just, the stakes are high, it's very yeah. confusing, and we have a lot of questions. So to back up for a moment, um, who is Jamal Khashoggi, and what is it about his work, his columns at the Washington Post, for example, that upset the Saudi government so much? So Jamal Khashoggi is longtime writer, longtime uh previously a friend of the Saudi royal family. Uh, But a year ago, after Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman took over running the day-to-day operations of the country, he felt like he had to come to the United States where he could write openly. Uh, And since then, he's been putting out critical pieces about the Saudi government uh, and MBS, asking for reforms and more freedoms to write and criticize the government without being too radical, uh, without calling for an end to the theocracy that's pretty much in place in Saudi Arabia uh, to, without calling for an open democracy or anything like that, just more reforms. Uh, but he, since uh, then, he's become clearly um, an enemy in the eyes of the Saudi government. Uh, he flew back to, he was in Istanbul with his fiance two weeks ago. Uh, he went into the Saudi consulate to get documents to prove that he is no longer married to his ex-wife, so he can get married to his new wife but he never came out, is the thing. He never emerged from the Saudi consulate. And since then, people have been trying to figure out what happened to Jamal Khashoggi. Okay, and, and, and let me ask you that, Hayes. Is that all we know? Like, what do we know for sure about wow. his disappearance? What we know for sure is that he's missing. That is one of the few things that we know with an absolute certainty. What else has come out there has been, in the course of the last two weeks, a lot of leaks from Turkish officials, Turkish government, uh, Turkish police, and talking to journalists and giving them a frame of where the investigation is going. And they say that within two hours of entering the consulate, Khashoggi was killed. Uh, The Saudis say, no, he left of his own free will. He's out there somewhere walking around. He might be in Istanbul. He might be who knows where. Uh, But the Turkish officials, Turkey says for sure he was killed by, not just by uh, Saudis, but by people close to Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. 
I, I'm just, it's just, this is just like overwhelming to, to process because there, there's so many huge implications. So I guess I would ask, I mean, obviously Donald Trump has weighed in to this uh, as he does. Um, what's at stake? Like, like for people like me who are like, okay, I'm not the best on following like Saudi US relations. What's at stake in terms of the relationship between the United States and Saudi Arabia and, and Turkey as well? So two, there's like two branches to how this uh, goes. On the one hand, there's the moral stake. There's the idea that, okay, we've known for years that the Saudi government is terrible on human rights, is uh, extremely uh, corrupt in terms of accepting bribes and pocketing oil money, uh, and has a lot of things that does a lot of things that we don't agree with, including the funding of extremists in the region and elsewhere. Uh, so that's the moral side of things. From a strategic side, though, uh, Saudi Arabia has so much oil, so much oil, and the uh, and the U.S. government was counting on that Saudi oil to help out when, in November, new sanctions roll back into place on Iran, cutting Iran off from the oil markets of the world, meaning that to keep oil prices down, we needed Saudi Arabia to boost their exports, but we can't really be best buds with Saudi Arabia if they killed a man like this. Wow. So that kind of background is very helpful in framing Ooh. Donald Trump's tweets, which we've mentioned, where he's basically saying innocent until proven guilty. Which, which is many a, people have noticed is similar to the way he talked about Kavanaugh. Mm, what yeah. Saeed just said. So I want to ask, how are members of Congress responding to this on both sides of the aisle? Mm. Uh, not great, Bob. Um, it turns <laughs> out uh, they are not pleased with the Saudis. Uh, a lot of, and it's not just Democrats, it's Republicans too, who are calling for either new sanctions on the Saudi government or to cut back on ties to the Saudi government. Uh, some people have suggested that we cut back on arms sales. Saudi Arabia uh, last year agreed to uh, over $100 billion worth of arms sales, $300 billion over the course of a decade. Trump has already said, though, nope, nope, we're not going to cut back on that. We need that money. Why would we cut off business tries just because of a thing that may or may not have occurred in Trump's eyes? All right. Well, Hayes, as Ooh. always, thank you for your knowledge. Thanks for the background. We appreciate you coming on this morning. Truly, because... Thanks, guys. What the hell's going on? It's very Ooh. creepy. Um, we have a tweet here from Taz Eagle. Uh, thoroughly enjoyed your Outlander tweets last <laughs> night and was intrigued enough to tune into A and to DM this morning. Glad I did. Am following both now. Thanks. That's awesome. And as your co-host you. and best friend, <laughs> I would like to make a statement here. We are not sponsored by Stars <laughs> or Outlander. This is not some crazy thing because you mentioned season four is That's coming true. back. That's All right, true. this is not some weird. But shameless pitch. If y'all want to have me interview them at Comic Con <laughs> or something, or come you know, on the show. Come I'm not on the Show. Get those actors I'm on the show. I want to see you look kilt daddy in the eyes. Uh -oh. All right, coming up, I'm talking to former Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, Julian Castro, but up next is Fire Tweets. Ooh, would you wear a kilt? Oh yeah, you, you know I'd wear a kilt. Welcome back. Uh, we've got a tweet here from Shawnee. Uh, Dreaming about work and not getting angry at my own subconscious is the new life goal. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty real. Real. I can't like believe that. Shawnee is voting November 6th. For those just tuning in, I had a dream about work that was like one of the happiest dreams. I was like, take me back. Work. I love that's, my job. I love you guys. That's really great. Yep. All right. Ready to do these fire tweets? Let's do it. Let's do it. <laughs> Debbie Ryan, you tweeted, Willy Wonka 2, we will wonk you. <laughs> Simple, I pure. love the simple, beautiful ones. Simple, pure. Now, let me tell you what's not simple and pure. This next username. You ready? Okay. This comes from... Sorry. I'm just a mess. Pumpkin Spice Pussy. <laughs> 
pumpkin spice pussy. Uh, am I attracted to this barista or does my brain just associate them with the caffeine I crave? I'm sorry, that's really real. <laughs> I had never thought about. I mean, they're the doctor hitting the button. Yeah. You're the rat. That's true. Wow. Yeah. Well, I would say judging by your username, it's a little bit of both. You know, <laughs> oh, what's going on there? All right, all right. <laughs> Young White, you tweeted, people who had emo phases are at our most powerful in the fall, feeling reckless. Might fuck around and poke thumb holes in my sweater sleeves. Ooh, my gosh, you Ooh. love that. I know you love that. If, if let me tell you, if this sweatshirt didn't cost so much, I would have cut some yeah, holes. there when you buy. Also, shout out to Jabuki Young White, the new correspondent on The Daily Show. I love your glow up, I love it. I love it. Okay, this tweet is so great. Uh, This tweet comes from Succubus. Y'all are, okay. You're getting the name. (laughs) (laughs) My dealer told me every time I use a reusable container instead of giving me a new baggie, he'll give me a discount. And that's what I call loyalty to the planet. That's just environmentalism. Listen, you know climate change is real. That's when just good. E- when even the stoners are getting concerned. Got the whole foods of weed out here. I love it. <laughs> Meep, you tweeted. Meep. What idiot called them antidepressants instead of worth control? I love that. Mm. It's not too late. Worth control. Worth control. That's so good. Worth control. <laughs> okay, and this tweet of the day, are you ready? Let's do it. I haven't done it in a while. It's like, okay. It comes from Tamil Udiga. Black Panther came out this year. That's how long the year has been. This tweet is wild to me. Dang. When I saw this tweet, it made me laugh, and then I immediately maybe started oh, crying. Oh, gosh. It was February. There was a time when you and I were going to dress up as cast members of Black Panther. Oh, or as characters. right. I was going to be Killmonger, and you are going to be the guy with the, the arm. The bad guy, yeah, yeah, with the head tattoo. I feel like we'd feel so late dressing up as We were so innocent now. then. We were so innocent. People would be like, what are you dressed as? <laughs> All right, listen, that's it for Fire Tweets. Up next, I'm talking with Julian Castro. Stay tuned. It's going to be an intense conversation. Don't want to miss it. Kill Daddy! All right. And Outlander. Sorry. More Outlander. Welcome back. I'm here with Julian Castro, the former Secretary of Housing and Urban Development and author of the new book, An Unlikely Journey, Waking Up from My American Dream. Good morning, sir. Good to be with you. Thank you you for being here. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. So I want to talk, you've spoken about your grandmother who immigrated here from Mexico. She was an orphan. Um, Do you think a story like that would still be possible today? It's a good question. Uh, And in the book, you know, I write uh, that I have doubts about that. Uh, my grandmother came over when she was a seven-year-old uh, orphan along with her younger sister uh, because their parents had passed away. And with the attitude that we see in Washington, D.C., not just toward undocumented immigrants, but even toward uh, documented legal immigrants uh, and the xenophobia, uh, I'm not sure that not only my grandmother's story, but the story of a whole bunch of other families would be possible if we had the kind of leadership that we have in there today. Absolutely. Uh, You you said uh, in your title, it says waking up from the American dream. Let me ask you, sir, when did you wake up and and, and when did that happen and why did that happen? Yeah. So, uh, you know, that subtitle was really about realizing that in each generation of my family, like I bet for a lot of families, uh, my grandmother, then my mother, and then my brother, Joaquin and me have realized that it's not just about working hard, you and your family working hard, that our country has had to get better so that people could achieve their American dream. Today, I think that you see a generation of young people, whether it's the folks that are doing March for Our Lives or other student activists, like young people figuring out that they need to push back and they need to help make our country better, Mm. more tolerant, more forward-looking, 
um, more understanding of different people and different cultures in, so that everybody can achieve their American dream. Mm. Do you think there's room in the Democratic Party right now for young people, or do you think some of the older leadership should get out of the way? I think you always need a mix. Um, I do think right now, when I get out there, because I've been campaigning for uh, candidates that are running in 2018, you know, all, all of us have our attention focused on November 6th, mm-hmm. What I hear is that people want new leadership. Mm. They want new faces. Mm-hmm. But you also always need a mix of, of new faces and folks with a lot of years of experience, right, to provide some guidance. So I, I believe that in the Democratic Party that there's room for both of those things. Yeah, but do, would you like to see a little bit more room for the younger oh, no folks question. coming up? Yeah, I mean, and the great thing is, I mean, you, you think about folks like Andrew Gillum out in Florida or Stacey Abrams in Georgia or Beto O'Rourke mm. in my home state of Texas. Mm-hmm. We have these fantastic young candidates that are coming up. How did you feel uh, Beto O'Rourke did last night against Ted Cruz? I, I thought he did well. Okay. Uh, you know, I mean, Ted Cruz, he, that's what he does, right? He was, a, he was a champion college debater, right? So it's not a surprise that, that you know, he holds his own in the debate. But I thought Beto did well uh, in terms of making sharper contrast in the first debate. Uh, I thought he was still very inspiring. Folks may have seen his, his uh, closing argument mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. really hearkened to what we're about as Americans. So I think it's gonna help fire up a lot of Texans and uh, this would be the first time if he wins that a Democrat has won in about 25 years in wow. Texas. So we're looking forward to November 6th. All right, well, let's talk more about kind of scrapping a little bit. Last week, Congressman Steve King tweeted this about you and your brother Joaquin. Two Texas politicians, Joaquin and Julian, the Castro twins, took Spanish lessons to qualify as retroactive Hispanics. It's not the first time King has said something like this. How do you respond to it? Yeah, I think if a couple of years back he said that he was just as Hispanic as I am. Yeah, he I said, said it, I don't it know was where like 2015. Yeah. yeah, you know, I think, yeah, so uh, he said that a couple of days before I went to go campaign with J.D. Shulton, a very impressive young guy who grew up in, the, in Iowa's 4th Congressional District, uh, and, and who's running against him. He's the Democratic nominee. Um, Steve King has failed his district. And so a lot of times what politicians do is when they have nothing else, they try to distract you. Mm. And what he does is tries to distract with bigotry. Uh, yeah, I mean, some people try to distract with one thing. He tries to distract with hate. Uh, when I was there in Iowa, I said, uh, yeah, we'll see you on November 6th, because I believe that the people of his congressional district and Americans in general, no matter what their background is, that they're, they're better than that. So that's your response, see you on game day. Yeah. See you on yeah, game day. Yeah, we're not going to go into the gutter on that kind of stuff when, when we have so many inspiring folks that are out there that are tackling the issues. Okay. Now, you've said that it's maybe likely that you'll run in 2020, so Trump's even more aggressive than Stephen King. So how would you deal with his attacks and and his kind of forcefulness? Well, I think the next nominee is gonna have to stand up to the president and call him out and point out his failures. And there are a lot of failures that uh, Donald Trump has already had. At the same time, I'm convinced that that the next president uh, is not gonna become president because he or she is exactly like Donald Trump. Mm. What Americans fundamentally want is a strong vision for the future and how you would impact their life and the life of their family. Uh, I I see Donald Trump as an aberration, and uh, I don't believe that American politics should continue to go in that direction. Um, That doesn't mean you don't stand up for yourself. You need folks who can stand up for themselves and the people that they want to represent. But I'm confident that whether I'm in that race or not, we have a very talented group of folks um, with the ability to both call him out, to stand up, and also to paint a positive, strong vision for our country's future. 
What would make you decide not to run? Well, uh, my wife Erica and I have um, kids that are fairly young. Our daughter Karina is nine, mm. and our son Christian is three. And you know, of course, we've talked about the idea of me running, but we haven't had that long conversation <laughs> that you often have to be had before major decisions, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And so we still have to have that conversation. Uh, that's one thing. Um, and then, just frankly. Yeah, I'm working for candidates uh, to elect candidates in November. I want to see what happens on November 6th mm. because um, these elections do set a mood. They set a tone. The American people do send a message about the next couple of years. I, I wanted to ask, you've said in the past too that Democrats are maybe struggling a little bit to energize the Hispanic vote. Do you think Democrats are going to win on November 6th if they, if they can't figure out how to do that, and especially in 2020? Well, there's no question there's work to be done there. And it's, there's also no question, you know, some of the reasons why. I mean, look at what's happening on the issue of family separation at the border, uh, this issue of, on the census of, of um, you know, scapegoating immigrants, just a whole bunch of things that I think are aimed at the Hispanic community. But I'm convinced that we're, we're only going to see uh, a jump in Hispanic turnout if there's a massive and sustained effort mm. at voter registration and voter turnout. Uh, I'm on the board of uh, Voto Latino, and that's part of what the organization does. Uh, but that needs to be scaled up in the future. It needs to be scaled up in the future. Well, sir, thank you so thank much for joining me. I truly, you. truly appreciate, appreciate it. An Unlikely Journey is out today. You can pick it up wherever books are sold. Up next, Hayes Brown sits down with the actor, Busy Phillips. Hayes Brown, and this is The Sit Down. I'm here with Busy Phillips, actor, author of This Will Only Hurt a Little, and host of the upcoming late night talk show, Busy Tonight. Welcome, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Hayes, I'm so happy to be sitting down. Right, so here's my first question for you. Yes. So this book is amazing, okay. and you tell so many honest stories in there. How do you get away with something like that in Hollywood, where you're telling these sort of very like true well, time stories. Time will tell because the book did just come out or is just mm. coming out. No, I'm kidding. I don't know. You know, look, to me, the most interesting thing and it's an Oprah lesson that I've known since childhood because I would come home after school and turn on Oprah at 3 p.m. in <laughs> Arizona is just that if you speak your own truth, mm -hmm. um, good things will come from that, you know? And so the, I feel like we're at a time s sort of culturally where being able to break down some of these taboo things that we're not supposed to talk about is incredibly valuable. And so I am, I'm okay with lending my voice to that chorus and, and, going out there with a lot of the things that I'm saying because I think that starting conversations is really important. I'm a mother, I've got two little girls, and I hope to give them um, a better and brighter future. I mean, we gotta focus on global warming now, but like, right. yeah, dude, yes. But, um, but in terms of, you know, culturally and socially where we're going, um, to me, it wasn't gonna be interesting to just write like a puffy book. I really wanted to get into it. Speaking of, in the book, you talk about the fact that you were raped at the age of 14. It's a story you also shared on Instagram during mm -hmm. the Brett Kavanaugh hearings. Mm -hmm. How did you get to a place where you were felt okay, felt like you needed to share that story? Um, 
Well, I had, you know, been working through it for a really long time and, um, and I write about it extensively in the book. Um, in my decision to write about it predated, you know, the events of the last year in terms of Me Too and Time's Up, but it was something that I felt like I was ready to really own my truth of and it's something that has certainly affected my entire life in terms of my relationships and um but when I, I I didn't really even though the chapter was in the book and the book is coming out obviously I didn't have any plans to kind of like blast it out on social right. media um but then when I saw um Christine Ford, Dr. Ford mm-hmm. um at the hearing and I saw her speaking the truth of something that had happened to her 30 years ago, a thing that's affected her so deeply, I just felt like I wanted to stand in solidarity. It was inspiring and I wanted to say, and it just felt like the day where I was like, we're all done. Like we're done holding on to these things and done keeping the secrets and like, here it is. You know, and so I, and it was scary. It was truly scary for me to put that out there too, right. to say those words, um, because I think that I spent a long time. Well, I know I spent a long time when I was very young, mm-hmm. convincing myself that it was something other than. But then I also like, as as you know, like a, a powerful woman and a and a woman out there trying to make it. I really resented like I'm not a victim. Like nothing, you know, and. And I think I just got to the place where I realized and certainly seeing Dr. Ford and her testimony was um, jarring for many, many, many people in this country. Many women and men were really shaken by it. And um, yeah, so I just wanted to add my voice. So shifting topics a little, uh, a lot of people have really focused in on the James Franco story in your book about the time he pushed you Mm -hmm. when on the set of Freaks and Geeks. At the end of the story, you felt like you had to be okay with his behavior uh, because uh, you had to preserve your job. Uh, Where do you think that expectation came from? Well, I think it came from the world. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that women are taught from the time when they're little girls. And well, first of all, you know, it's like the old ad. My husband wrote the movie, He's Just Not That Into You, which is based on right. Greg Barron's book. But, um, you know, from the time we're little girls, we're taught that if a boy shoves you down, it means he likes you, right? right? Well, that's bullshit. We all know that's bullshit. So I'm sorry, can I say that on BuzzFeed? You can totally anyway, say that Anyway, okay, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know where we're at. Um, but, uh, but, you know, in terms that, and that story is a story that I, I was actually very surprised at this mm-hmm. week at the response to that because it's a story that I have told publicly many times Mm -hmm. and it's in the book simply as like, you know, in a chat, in a chapter that's about other things, but to illustrate just the message was very clear to me from the beginning in Hollywood that I was expendable and that, um, you know, and, and James and I, and James has since apologized, which, you know, I've talked about, um, and I think that what I was trying to do was use the that incident to illustrate a larger 
point about the way that women are treated in the workplace, especially like we're expected to like make concessions for the man. If the man's right. more difficult, okay, we won't be difficult. We right. will, you know, do all of the things to sort of bend so that the the dude can be whatever the fuck he needs to be, right? right? And um, and I think that that message obviously got lost in the noise of the, like right. the celebrity gossip of it, mm -hmm. which is unfortunate to me because I do think I'm trying to make sort of a larger point in the entire book. And honestly, you know, I saw Judd the other night, um, Judd Apatow the other night, and um, Paul Feig had reached out to me on email. He's mm -hmm. in another country, I don't know. But, um, we, you know, I was like, well, I don't blame, I don't think anyone handled it any way that they didn't think it should be handled at the time. Like, we just know better now, you mm -hmm. know what I mean? And isn't that wonderful? That we've all, that we've all, that we're moving, that we're progressing, right. and hopefully the progression will continue. Speaking of progression, at the end of the book, you literally write, I, you write that you decided to host a late night show. Yeah. You write, I say I'm going to do something, and then I go and fucking do it. That's right. How did you go and fucking do it with this show that you're now hosting? I just hosting? was like, into the world. Into the world. Um, but kind of, kind of though, a little bit kind of. Um, I don't know, I just, I, Tina Fey, uh, had reached out because we had done a pilot together for NBC that didn't get picked up mm -hmm. and she wanted to know if I wanted to develop something else and I a comedy like a mm -hmm. scripted show and I just was feeling like I did, it wasn't what I wanted to do and so mm -hmm. when I decided I wanted to do a late night talk show I called her production company and they were like okay let us think about it for a minute and then like two weeks later she called back and said I think I may have just sold your show to E over the phone. <laughs> Um, surprise! Surprise! Is that you still want to do that, right? Yeah. I was like, yes, that's exactly what I want to do. Your best friend is former Dawson's Creek co-star Michelle Williams. Your relationship seems perfect, but all BFFs fight. What's the worst argument you ever had? We've really only had one, and it was brutal and really upsetting. <laughs> um, and thankfully, we made up. Um, but you're gonna go through it, you know, with your friends. We've also, we, we've been, we've seen each other through so many different phases of one another's lives, you know? And like, I have, I'm, an I'm loyal, I'm very loyal to my friendships. Mm -hmm. um, like the only other thing I'm that loyal to are my grudges. <laughs> <laughs> but, you gotta have balance in your life. But I am, and I only have a few, but I am really, really, I'm a really loyal friend. So, you know, my best friend Emily Beebe and I have been best friends since we were five. Michelle and I met and fell in love on the set of um, Dawson's Creek. And, you know, I hold on to people. Um, and I think that that's like a lot of times people will ask me online or whatever, like, what's the secret to friendship and your long lasting friendship with Michelle or whatever. And it's just like, you have to just be able to like move through different phases with your friends. Mm -hmm. Even if you're, you're in a phase with a friend where you're like, this is not your best phase. Fair. You know? Yeah. So your book gave me so many questions, many more than we could ask in one interview. So we're gonna try something really quickly. We have a bowl filled with questions. Lovable. And so we're gonna pull a couple and see how many you can answer. Okay. Ready and okay. go. TV show you would love to direct. The Good Place. Nice. 
Um, what good cause do you wish people paid more attention to? Mental health in this country. Nice. Um, and off, a global warming, obviously, now. Jeez, Louise. <laughs> Did you invent you guys as the default Insta story greeting? You guys, here's the thing. <laughs> you, guys. you guys. Here's the thing. Everyone, every girl I know from Scottsdale, Arizona, starts sentences with you guys. All of my friends. But yeah, probably. I probably did. I probably did. <laughs> Role you auditioned for and didn't get that you still think about? I guess something in Bridesmaids. Mm. Didn't get that. Whoop. Uh, best story you weren't allowed to put in the book? I could put any story I wanted into the book. Um, I can't even remember what got cut. I don't know, but there's always book two. Always ah. book two. Um, is Audrey Liddell still singing backup for John Mayer? I imagine she is. <laughs> and... Worst part about going to award shows is mm, ah, you were so up. close. We get don't no go Hold for up. it, go for it, go for it. Worst part of going to award shows as Michelle's date, um, just like I'm like just getting to the age where high heels really hurt my feet. <laughs> Legit. Honestly, answer. Honestly, that's like truly like the only thing where I'm like, do, do Adidas fit under this gown? Can I just wear Adidas? The last Oscars that I went to with her, I yeah. brought my like Stan Smiths in the car Beautiful. and I just changed for all the after parties I was wearing Stan I was wearing Adidas. We stand the Stan Smiths. I stand them too. Thank you so much for <laughs> thanks, being thanks, with thanks. us here, Busy. This will only hurt a little is available now. And Busy Tonight premieres October 28th on E. Up next, more AM to DM. Asif Manvi posted this about the return of his one-person show, Sakina's Restaurant. I never thought that 20 years later, the story I wrote about an immigrant family would be an act of political resistance against an administration that is at war with immigrants. Whew, neither do we, friends. Um, actor and comedian Asif Manvi joins me now. Hey. Hi, how are you? I am great. Congratulations Thank on the revival. You. Thanks for having me on. Um, well, let, let's get into it. I have so many questions about this as, as yeah. a writer, as artist. Um, you know, what made you decide to revive the show 20 years later? Was there a specific moment? Yeah, it was when Audible, who was producing the show, mm -hmm. called me and said, hey, uh, would you be interested in reviving your show after 20 years? <laughs> and initially I thought, no, I don't know if I want to do that. You know, it's, it's 20 years old and I didn't know if it would be relevant. And then they said, look, you know, why don't we do a reading of it and let's hear it out loud. So I did a reading for them. And in reading it myself and for them, we sort of agreed that the show really did have a relevance today. And perhaps even more of a relevance mm -hmm. today because the, sto the, 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 uh, the story of immigrants and Muslims and all that stuff is so much in our national headlines Absolutely. in a way today than it was not 20 years ago, right. you know? So it felt almost like what we did 20 years ago felt relevant in a whole different way now, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. And I love that when, when something you write, you know, just set it aside for a while, yeah. you reread it and it's acting upon you as yeah. a writer. I mean, the world has changed. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when, when I wrote the show and when I performed the show, mm -hmm. it was pre 9 11, it was uh, pre internet, it was pre Trump, mm -hmm. obviously. And so uh, the story is a, a human story of immigrants who happen to be Indian, happen to be Muslim, mm -hmm. living in New York, and they're. Uh, dreams, joys, struggles with the American uh, American dream and, and their immigrant experience. Um, it's not a political play, 
And that's what that tweet was about. It was almost like a politicized play by the context. Yeah, I mean, here's the thing. What happens is that when you want to dehumanize people, you politicize them. Mm. And so the best way to dehumanize people, whether they be Mexicans or immigrants or Muslims or whatever, is to make them political pawns. Um, And so what this play does is it's not a political play. And it is a a human play. It is a story about a family. It is a story about people struggling with their identity, struggling with what it means to be American, struggling uh, with the joys and heartbreaks of that. And uh, that story, because it's a human story and we're not seeing the humanizing of immigrants right now, it, for me, became a political act by virtue of the fact that it's not political. Mm -hmm. And and let's talk about the humanity because part of what's stunning, as as you noticed, is is about an immigrant family and their restaurant, it's just you. It's just me, it's (laughs) just me by the way. There are like no breaks, right? Right. So it's just you playing how many characters? I play six characters, um, male (laughs) and female. Yeah, Yeah. Um, just all the way. uh, And and we just go right through and Uh there's no no pause, there's no stop. The the play is beautifully um, uh, directed by Kimberly Senior. Uh, who uh, and we have these amazing transitions that sort of just move from one thing to the next, mm-hmm. uh, and and you know music and lights and a, and a costume piece here and there mm-hmm. that just transforms me from uh, the son to the father mm-hmm. to the daughter to the mother, you know. I mean, so because of that, I'm just so curious, you know, just because of the, the technical performative yeah. artistry that you're doing, but also, as you said, like, you know, this play 20 years later, yeah. everything that's like, you, you could be getting ready to go to stage and see a tweet from the president, it's like right. lighting up a different aspect. Right. What does it feel like to perform this show? It's interesting, you know, I, I feel like the show has, I mean, obviously I'm 20 years older, okay. so I have 20 years of life experience. Which, shout out to you, friend. Oh, well, thank okay. you. <laughs> <laughs> You look great. I'm like you. I, I would hope 20 years later. It's a nice suit. Looking cute. Looking cute. Yeah. Um, but uh, you know, I, I'm 20 years older. I think that I, I obviously I have the maturity of someone now mm-hmm. who, having lived for 20 years longer. But but I also feel like the country is in a different place, and mm. and sometimes things that might have seemed. Um, uh, light or you know humorous or something 20 years ago almost are heartbreaking now because you we are inevitably uh, experiencing it through the lens mm-hmm. of where we are today and so um, I find that like the audience is uh, much more engaged in a whole different way but also more moved by the show than they were 20 years ago. Wow, it's like the colors have changed. Yeah. Um, Here's a tweet I wanted to read from Maria Soma. She said, uh, saw Sakina's restaurant earlier this week and loved it. The next morning at a local diner, I chatted with two individuals who came to this country for a better life. The conversation transported me back to the theater and reminded me of why my grandparents came to America. Thank you. Oh, so, nice. and if that is like, you know, if your play can accomplish anything. I yeah. Think it's yeah. That, so what do you hope when people walk into the Manetta Lane Theater here in New York and see you perform, what do you hope they walk out of the theater with? I Honestly, for me, what, what theater can do, which very other few art forms can do, is uh, give that collective human experience. Mm-hmm. You know, we're all in the same space together and we're telling a story. I'm just up there telling a story mm-hmm. that is a human story and I hope that people are moved by it, you know? It's an emotional play. It's, mm-hmm. a, it's, it's a play that is funny but it's an ex- and, and, and sad and all those things, but it's also an experience. So, so I hope people have that emotional experience and, and step into a world of this immigrant family and experience 
a slice of what it is, uh, what the immigrant story and the immigrant experience is, you know? So, and, and, and again, the humanizing of it. That's really my, my main purpose here is to uh, humanize these stories and, and tell stories of human beings. So as opposed to what we're seeing in the news and what our administration wants to um, shove down our throats, which right. is that these people are scary and they're rapists and they're bad and they're, they're, and they're gonna blow us up. This is a story about human beings and people who are just trying to make a life here in America. Yeah, and, and I, I did want to ask about The Daily Show, right? Yeah. You left in, in 2015, which is like, we were so innocent then. <laughs> uh, so much has changed. Do you, I mean, obviously you're doing something incredibly now and ab absolutely engaging culture and, you know. Yeah. Um, do you miss being on The Daily Show? Do you miss that format in the context of like, oh man, I could really take it to Trump right now? I mean, you know, look, uh, yes, sometimes there is a sense of like, I'll be screaming at the television and I've, <laughs> I, I wish that, you know, I had a, a platform to go out there. And But I feel like, you know, there is, uh, the, 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 the news cycle and the Trump cycle is so fast and furious mm -hmm. and it's so absurd sometimes that I feel like, you know, as, as a satirist or as a, a, a comedian in that, in that context, it almost feels like it's a joke on a joke sometimes. Mm. So I don't even know, uh, you, you know, how you, um, I, I mean, applause to my colleagues who are, who are doing that right now. But uh, I don't think it's, it's easier today. It I doesn't think, look I think, easier. <laughs> I think it's, I think it's there's, there's, the, the thing is that I'm outraged, you know, just, and I think a lot of that outrage gets filtered through a lot of the, the political satire that's mm -hmm. going on in, in our culture right now. And, um, but, but I, I don't think it's great for comedy. I think it's, I think it, um, because, because we have a reality show. We have a, we have a, 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 a reality show president who has turned the administration into a reality show. Mm. And so, you know, I, wait, I don't know about you, I wake up every day and I'm like, what crazy thing right. did Trump say today? Right. Yeah. You know, he's become the clown in chief, yeah. you know, so. It's always sweeps. <laughs> so, wow. I don't know how, what, what you do to top that, you know? Me either, me either. Well, also, I think you're doing something great. I'm Thank so you glad very you much. brought back Sakina's Restaurant. Again, you can see the play, uh, Sakina's Restaurant at the Mineta Lane Theater here in New York until November 11th, which also happens to be a few days after the Terms, I'm just saying. Uh, up next, Stephanie is talking about the new Netflix hit, The Haunting of House Hill. I also live tweeted that this weekend. Here's a tweet from Caitlin. Who is watching The Haunting of Hill House? Because I need to talk about it potentially in the middle of the night when I can't sleep because I'm afraid of the dark now. Ringing endorsement there, Caitlin. Okay, everyone on the timeline is obsessed with this show, including Saeed, including my husband, Brian. I don't know, I am not very into horror and scary stuff, but joining me now to discuss the phenomenon and maybe convince me I should watch it too is Nora Dominic, BuzzFeed Junior staff writer and TV guru. Nora, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. Okay, so if you've been living under a rock and not on Twitter, what is this show about? Uh, it's basically about this family um, that's been living in this haunted house, and it kind of deals with the past and the present and how the paranormal activity has affected their family in general, and there's like more of a family struggle than necessarily jumping out ghost stuff, but yeah. So is it gory? Is it... Jump like a jump scare kind of show. More or? of a jump scare kind of show. Like a lot of the show is pretty cool because if you're not paying attention to the background, chances are you're gonna miss 
a ghost or something they've thrown in the background, which is really cool, I think. So it's definitely more about the jump scare and not expecting it as opposed to like the blood and the gore type of thing. This is one of those Netflix shows that I had heard nothing about at all. I've heard no promo for it. And then over the weekend, all of a sudden, it's all anyone on Twitter is talking about. It's all anyone in the office is talking about. Our producer, Jake, was talking about it on Monday. Why do you think this story is resonating so much with viewers? I think it kind of goes back to what I said. It's more about family and siblings and kind of like the trauma that comes with what happened to them in the past and how it's really affecting their present. I think it's less about the this haunted house and more about like the family dynamic that's gone with it and how they're kind of coping with it. Yeah, I want to read a tweet from Ah Rach Monsters. Very funny. The Haunting of Hill House is incredible. Not just a great horror series, but a fascinating character story. A move, profoundly moving look at a family and loss and fear. Brilliant performance and casting. Everything I ever wanted and more. Okay, so let's talk about this cast a little bit. There, we have a few familiar faces, right? Absolutely. It is a stacked cast, I think. You've got Elizabeth Reeser from Twilight and Grey's Anatomy. You've got Lulu Wilson, who has just played Marion in Sharp Objects. You've got Mikael Huseman, who is in Game of Thrones. You've got Henry Thomas, who is in E.T. Like, it's an unbelievably stacked cast, I think, and they all play off well off each other, and they're also playing characters that we haven't seen them play before, which I think is really exciting. So you mentioned Sharp Objects. Is this similar to Sharp Objects kind of vibe, where it's not necessarily scary, but it's kind of, you know, thrilling, or is it more of like an American Horror Story? I think more, we're leaning more towards American Horror Story, Murder House-esque, um, a lot more jump scares, very thrilling and kind of, it. I think more so than American Horror Story, it's really rooted in this family. Um, so less about like the rubber man popping out and more about like how their dynamics have changed because of this haunting. So what do you think is the best episode? Like if we're going through the series, what, what should we be looking forward to? Hands down episode five. I think it's a brilliant episode. It's a little longer and it does the show justice. All right. Uh, I think I might. You know, it's, it's Halloween season. It's spooky season. Maybe I'll work up the courage to it's watch it. It's worth it. Yeah. Worth it, hands down. Yeah, you know, get get some pumpkin carving going on, got a little apple cider, and maybe we'll do it. Yeah. Nora, thank you so much for coming Thanks on so and much. joining me today. We want to hear from you. Are you watching The Haunting of Hill House? You probably are. It seems like everybody is. Let us know what you think. Or if you're like me and you don't like being scared, send me some Halloween movies that aren't so terrifying using the hashtag AMCDM. Up next, Isaac and Saeed are responding to your tweets. All right. That was a great show. It was a good We had so many great guests. Busy Phillips. Busy Phillips is everything. And not, to, not to be all like, yeah. But I want to talk more Outlander. Because then there's a lot of, now I'm getting Ooh. harassed. Yeah, I was trying to, I, I was harassed. Like, I mean, <laughs> engaged with, thank you so much. Love you all so much. He is so scared of y'all. Yeah, man, they're powerful. Um, you know I don't mess with Beehive. You know, I just, I true. try to mind my that's business. True. Okay, an essential question. Live in the light. Uh, I do try to live in the light, which is another thing. Again, I mentioned it early in the show. I checked out your Twitter feed. I did see a lot of abs, mm -hmm. a lot of thirst. Question I want to ask you, is mm -hmm. this porn? Yeah, it's not, not porn. <laughs> <laughs> I, Isaac, friend, I've seen some things. <laughs> I, you know, it's, it's, you know, part of what I think is very interesting about Outlander, there's a lot going on, um, is when I think about prestige shows and, and Game of Thrones, which also rape culture, violence, mm. war, mm. history, mm. Uh, monarchy, you, all of this, like many of the same things, but it's such a um, male, teenage boy, toxic masculine gaze. Outlander is totally, it's like a feminine gaze, I feel. I, I, and, and it's, but it's just as terrifying. 
Okay. Right? And the violent is just as perilous um, because, I mean, what do, you, what, what do you think happens to a woman when she's transferred two, two or three hundred years back in time into the middle of the, you know, Scotland? It's like, it's a dangerous place. Yeah. Um, but uh, pleasure is still real and, and sex and eroticism is still real. And listen, ladies, do it. That's what I've learned. <laughs> Shout out to y'all. I can't wait. I'm going to take you. I'm going to look up a place where we can get you a kilt. We're going to go this afternoon. Uh, I do need go, a Halloween costume. Go get you fitted. Anyway. Okay. <laughs> Okay, so obviously the Outlander Hive has arrived. Our mentions just both as Kilt Hive, know us, Kilt Daddy, what's up? Uh, Sherry Foreman, you tweeted this. Um, I'm also enjoying watching your show for the first time. You guys are great. Should I take some Sudafed and live tweet? Kilt Daddy. Uh, Sherry. <laughs> I'm going to say absolutely. I'm not afraid no. to say take the medication. Absolutely. AM to DM, we're here every morning at 10 a.m., five days a week. <laughs> Always feel free to bring the Sudafed uh, and get loose with it. I did have to make myself a hot toddy a couple of times. See, it's there you go. Oh, all right. Listen, the R tweeted this. That's a great binge. And honestly, are you surprised? This fandom doesn't play. I get it now. This fandom does not Y'all play. Y'all don't play. I mean, also, you know, because every, there is a thing, like every fandom kind of thinks they are like the fiercest and most passionate. Y'all know I live tweet all kinds of shows. So this is definitely unprecedented. I have never had an experience like this where people are just like, y'all showed up. If I was playing Risk, all right, but it's the internet <laughs> instead of countries and it's fandoms, okay. like I would want to get the Outlander, like it'd be like behind Hive and Outlander, that, that'd be what I'd go for. Yeah, I like it. They're, they're strong. All right, well, listen. Yeah. <laughs> we asked you. We also, <laughs> we're just so giggly and have been away from the show for so long. <laughs> uh, we asked you for your most ridiculous reason you've ever called out of work. And y'all have some crazy stories. Um, Kat Cummins, you said this. Last time I missed work, also over Outlander. All three seasons in 48 hours. So two days no work. And I and Cat Girl, you know, I'm not judging. I'm not judging. But you and I know those episodes are like long. Like it's it's a draining, like it's I'm That's just hoping your boss doesn't watch this show and we didn't just snitch on you, Kat. I'm so sorry. And again, Woo! I do want to say, feed your children, make your job appointments, don't lose your job. I get it. He's great at live tweeting, but you, you know, like, I'll be responsibility there. to your life. It's get that done first. It's the on my, on my profile if you want to find it. All right. Well, listen, Woo! thank you to all the Outlander fans who joined us this morning and thank you to our guests, Nora Dominic, Stephanie McNeil, Asif Monvi, Busy Phillips, Hayes Brown, Julian Castro, and Nick Martin. What a day. Yeah. What is today? What's tomorrow? It's Thursday? Thursday? Tomorrow? It's Thursday. We'll see you back here. <laughs> Thursday, 10 a.m. Same time, same place, same <laughs> confusion. Yeah.